Welcome to Homeland, 10 Stories, 1 Israel. Israel has brought together millions of Jews from across the diaspora in the world's most chaotic family reunion. This podcast is about what that really looks like. Though this series is fictional, each person is based on real stories shared with us by real people. In our last episode, we met Matan Berenbaum-Williams, who couldn't imagine himself anywhere but Israel. Our Israelis, and one very talkative American, passed the time by trading their life stories. Today you'll meet Nachi Gelman, who just might defy your expectations. Nachi Gelman knew he had no business talking to any of these kind strangers about empathy, not when his personal life was in such shambles, when it seemed like every evening ended with raised voices and unkind words. But you could still believe in empathy, even if you were too blinded by your own selfish feelings to practice it. So, he plastered on a smile. For a moment, at least, it would be nice to remember the heady idealism of those early days when he first moved to Israel, when everything seemed, if not simple, then at least clear. So, you came here for a girl? I know. Hard to believe, right? He gestures to his shoulder-length sideburns, which are streaked with more gray than seems reasonable. When did he get this... old? So what happened? I married her. Aw, we love a happy ending. Was it love at first sight? Mm, For me it was. For her, she barely noticed me at first. What made you fall in love so quickly? Nahi pauses, thinking. Aside from the fact that she was beautiful, she had this fire, this passion. When she spoke, everyone listened. She had this way of making you feel passionate about things too, bringing out a spark in everyone. That's pretty amazing. We were only 17 when we met, but she already had conviction. She was just completely certain of her purpose. So were you guys like a power couple? (laughs) Absolutely not. I was just trying to keep up with her when we met. When was that? 1995. I was in year 12 and I had no idea what I was doing with my life. It's not that Nachi didn't like school. It's just that he liked not going to school better. It took 10 minutes to drive from campus to his favorite beach. And though he wasn't a surfer or even a particularly good swimmer, walking on the beach beats sitting in a classroom. At least it did, until Rabbi Schachter cornered Nachi in synagogue one Shabbat to ask why he hadn't been to class in three days. In front of mom and dad. Do you have any idea how much Jewish school costs, Nachi? Mom raged. Nachi knew better than to answer that one. Dad wasn't thrilled, but he was a little more gentle. With concern, he asked, Did something happen at school that made you not want to go? Has anyone been making you upset? Are you being bullied or something? No, Dad, Nachi said, rolling his eyes. I'm not a child. No one's bullying me. I just don't feel like going. Do you think I want to be at work every day? Mum seethed. Better yet, do you think I want to be talking to your teachers about your abysmal performance in school? Do you think I want to be having this conversation with you? Dad just looked disappointed. You're 18 years old, Nachi. You're an adult. It's time to start acting like one. Apparently, acting like an adult meant getting dropped off at school, his mother watching like a hawk to make sure he was stepping through the doors. It was enough to make a person insane. In fact, he might have gone insane, if not for B'nai Akiva. What's B'nai Akiva? It's a religious Zionist youth movement. 
Though, I was more interested in the social part than the religious or Zionist one. So, like an after-school program? Sort of. It mostly meets on weekends, like a Shabbat away with your friends and counsellors. That's where I met Hadassah. She came to Melbourne from Auckland, New Zealand to visit her cousins. Wait, this is a dumb question, but there are Jews in New Zealand? Just a few. The whole family is in Israel now, though. Got it. Why did your parents let you go away for the weekend, even though you were skipping school? My parents would never. They thought B'nai Akiva would be good for me. You know, it was a religious environment. They hoped our madrachim, our uh, counselors, would knock some sense into me. Did they? Hadassah did, so close enough. Nahi was not a fan of intense political discussions. For one, they were boring, full of fiddly little details that were impossible to remember. Plus, they usually seemed to end with at least one person sulking and upset. So he had no intention of going to the student-led discussion of the Oslo Accords during a Bnei Akiva Shabbaton. Until he saw Hadassah Evenchen sitting cross-legged on the grass, debating furiously with Josh Lipman, the most annoying kid in Nachi's year. She was just so pretty. Long red hair, a flowy colorful dress, like a spot of technicolor against everyone else's black and white. And she seemed to be taking Josh apart, which was beautiful to watch. So, Nahi plunked himself down to listen. They're dangerous, Hadassah was arguing. Do you realize how many people have died in terror attacks since they signed the first accords? What did I miss? Nahi whispered to the girl sitting next to him. They're talking about Oslo, she answered helpfully. Nahi knew exactly two things about the Oslo Accords. One, they had something to do with peace in the Middle East. Two, everyone around him seemed obsessed with them, including, apparently, Hadassah. They're just irresponsible, she was saying. I want peace as much as the next person, but it can't come at any cost. Come on, Dossie, Josh interrupted. Don't you think you're being a little dramatic? First of all, my name is Hadassah, she corrected icily. And second of all, no, I don't think it's dramatic to question the wisdom of a so-called peace agreement when buses are exploding in the street. Okay, this was a position Nahi could understand. Like the rest of his classmates, he was supposed to go to Israel for his gap year after graduation. But as the stabbings and shootings and bombings ratcheted up, his parents had been debating whether he should stay home in Melbourne. Nahi wasn't thrilled about going to yeshiva for a year, but he was excited about living in Jerusalem. So he'd been doing his best to play on his parents' religious convictions with lines like, Think about how much I'll learn, and Rabbi Schachter says there's no replacement for the year in Israel. His parents saw right through this sudden enthusiasm for Torah learning, of course. But still, the gap year in Israel was a rite of passage for many kids in their community. One they didn't want Nahi to miss. So the debates continued. Okay, think about this seriously, Josh was telling Hadassah. Like, really think about it. Do you really think it's a good idea for Israel to stay in the West Bank? To send teenage soldiers to put down constant rioting and violence? I'll ask you to think about this seriously, Hadassah answered. Do you really think it's a good idea to capitulate to terror and leave Yehuda and Shomron? Like Nahi's teachers and Bnei Akiva Madrichim, she used the biblical name for the West Bank. Don't you think that Israel causes the terror by occupying the West Bank? butted in Nahi's classmate Malka. Like Josh, Malka seemed to thrive on debating. You can't occupy what's yours, Hadassah said calmly. 
Yehuda and Shomron are Jewish land. And I think that we'd all be smart to listen to what Yasser Arafat, Yamach Shemo, says behind closed doors. Then we can talk about the real reason for the terror attacks. Nahi knew that Arafat was the PLO chairman, though he had no idea what Arafat said behind closed doors. He could guess from Hadassah's tone that it was nothing good. I agree with Hadassah, piped up Nahi's friend Abby. He's obviously not a real partner for peace. And I think that Rabin is making a huge mistake by partnering with someone who shakes hands in public and incites his people in private. She turned to Nahi. What do you think, Nahi? I know Blau agrees with me. Mrs. Blau was their history teacher, though Nahi had no memory of her talking about any of this. Uh, yeah, he said. I think terrorism is really bad. But do you think that's enough to give up on the accords? Josh pressed. Uh, yes, Nahi said, hoping that someone would swoop in and save him. These accords aren't worth the paper they're written on, Hadassah said. Not when the guy signing them is literally inciting terror. You're wrong, Josh said. Hadassah sighed. I wish I were. I really do. The conversation fizzled out soon after that, and as the group picked up their belongings, Nahi fell in beside Hadassah. You know a lot about politics, he observed. She glanced at him. It's important. If I'm going to be kicked out of my home and get nothing but terror in exchange, I'm going to have strong feelings about it. I thought you lived in New Zealand, he said. I'm making Aliyah as soon as I'm done with year 12, she said. I'm going to study in seminary next year. I'm going to Harova in the old city of Jerusalem. And then I'm going to make Aliyah and move somewhere in the Gush. The Gush? he asked dumbly. She looked at him. Gush Etzion? In Hare Yehuda, the West Bank? Oh. Why would you want to live there, he asked. Isn't it kind of dangerous? Could you say that about all of Israel, she asked. Uh, I guess. But some places are more dangerous than others, he said. She shrugged. Every bullet has an address. If it's my time, it's my time. That doesn't mean you have to put yourself in danger, though, he said. Aren't you putting yourself in danger every time you get behind the wheel of a car, she asked. There's no such thing as safety. Not really. And human beings are bad at evaluating what is safe and what isn't. I guess, he said. But that doesn't mean you should be reckless. She looked at him. Her eyes were a very dark blue. Doesn't it? Uh... Was it reckless for our ancestors to stay Jewish rather than convert to Christianity, she asked. It was pretty dangerous to be Jewish for most of history. You could die in terrible ways. I don't think that's the same, he said. I think it's exactly the same. If something is worth it, then you accept the risks. It's worth it to you to drive somewhere so you get behind a wheel. It's worth it to me to live in the land Hashem gave me, so I take the risk to move there. It's as simple as that. I never thought about it that way, he said. You should, she said. That's your homeland they're trying to give away. So I feel weird saying this, but she sounds like a fanatic. <laughs> Not a fanatic. Deeply, deeply passionate about the land of Israel. How did she react when Rabin was assassinated? <sighs> she was heartbroken. You can't blame me for asking. There were many, many people who were not heartbroken about his death. Wait, guys, back up. Can you explain what you're talking about? How much do you know about the Oslo Accords? 
not a ton. Big deal peace agreement from the 90s that fell through. That's basically all I know. That's a very accurate summary. What you need to understand, though, is that the Accords were very divisive. Lots of people in Israel supported them, but a lot were very against them. Right. There were two sets of agreements. The first was signed in 1993. You've probably seen the footage of the famous handshake between Rabin and Arafat in the White House. Yeah. I didn't realize there was another agreement, though. Yes. Another agreement was signed in 1995, just a few months before Rabin was assassinated. A lot of people in Israel were opposed to the 1993 signing. There were people who thought that Rabin was giving in to terror. Then there were the people who thought that the agreement wasn't going far enough and wouldn't even lead to a state. What about, um, the other side? The Palestinians? Same idea there. Some people were pro, but a lot thought that the deal wasn't going far enough at all. It didn't actually mention a lot of important things, like the borders of any future state, for example. And then, of course, there were those who felt that any negotiations with us, with the Israelis, was treason. It sounds like a mess. It was a mess. Especially because Hamas and Islamic Jihad and all those groups were inciting more chaos with terror attacks. Which just made the anti-Oslo crowd in Israel even more convinced that the Accords were never going to work. Plus, I don't think any Israelis really trusted Yasser Arafat. In 1994, a journalist caught him giving a speech in South Africa, telling people that Oslo was garbage and encouraging them to fight for Jerusalem. Whoa, I didn't know about that. It was a very big deal at the time. So, a lot of people, Hadassah included, were absolutely baffled as to why Rabin would continue to press for peace when he had no real partner. Okay, I get that. Unfortunately, one of those people took matters into his own hands. He assassinated Rabin minutes after a peace rally in 1995. A Jewish guy, by the way, not an Arab, so... Like I said, the Accords were very divisive. It was a very ugly time. He's right. I'm sorry to say that a lot of people were happy about Rabin's death. That's dark. They thought he was selling out the nation. How did Hadassah feel about the assassination? She was so, so sad. You have to understand. We may have been against the Accords for security reasons and religious reasons, but that doesn't mean we wanted to see the Prime Minister killed. Elun, who has been quiet this whole time, speaks up. I was against these agreements, but sometimes the anger against Rabin on the right shocked me. I also thought Rabin was making a huge mistake, but I did not call him a Nazi like some people I knew. There was a saying, with blood and fire we will expel Rabin. I did not vote for him, but I would not chance such a thing. And I did not expect that someone would take such a chance seriously. Now I think I was naive. We were all naive. I remember feeling completely lost, just in shock. Me too. Even though we were watching it from far away, it must have been much harder to actually be here. So, I get the whole security argument against the Accords. Like, I get why someone would feel like, hey, I'm ready for peace, but you aren't. But I don't really get the whole religious objection. There are many people who think that to give up the land of Israel is a sin. I am one of them. But why? Because this is the land God gave us. We are obligated to settle it. Yeah, but that's not a good argument for people who aren't religious or aren't Jewish. Or who feel the same way, but from the other side. You know what I mean? I understand. This is how people felt. This is how I feel. This is one of the reasons it's very frustrating to live in Israel. 
We are a very divided society. Religious, not religious. There is a lot of disagreement about how much religion should be allowed into government decisions. It is not easy. Yeah, I guess there's no separation of church and state in Israel. This is all so complicated. It is. So, I guess the agreements had some clause about Israel pulling out of territory? Yes, we pulled out of Yericho, Jericho in the West Bank, and part of Gaza. These are places that are important to us. They're in the Bible. There was a big fear that Jerusalem would be next. Even though Jerusalem was never even discussed in the agreements. Yeah, I mean, I don't really care who owns Jerusalem, so to me, that doesn't feel like a big deal. You should care. If you want the ability to go to the Western Wall and pray, you should be very interested in who controls Jerusalem. If you think the Arabs will give us freedom of religion, you are very naive. I mean, I'm not sure I have freedom of religion now. I see how ultra-Orthodox people treat women who want to pray at the Wall. You think this is the same as not being allowed to pray at all? You know what happened when the Jordanians controlled the holy sites until the Six-Day War? You see what happens to places like Joseph's tomb? They are desecrated. Nahi interrupts the heated exchange. We're not going to solve all these problems now. These are much bigger conversations that we've been having for a long time. Emily refocuses on Nahi and nods. You're right. I didn't mean to argue. I just want to understand different perspectives better. I'm sorry, Elaine. There's nothing to apologize for. Once you're here a little longer, your feelings might change. About all of this. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, so what happened after you and Hadassah met? Did you keep in touch? Write each other letters? Oh no. It was even more embarrassing than that. I did end up going to Israel for my gap year in the end. My parents had been worried about it because of the security situation, but they were just so relieved that I seemed even a little interested in Jewish education. Even though, of course, I was more interested in Hadassah than Yeshiva. So I sort of went to my yeshiva classes, but I also spent a lot of time hanging around as close to her seminary as possible, hoping I'd see her. And eventually, I did. That is next level. I don't know whether you're adorable or a stalker. (laughs) Maybe a little of both. So when did she start liking you back? Well, at first I was just following her lead, reading things she told me to read, going to shirim, Torah classes that she recommended. But eventually... All of that rubbed off on me, and I really, truly started to be inspired by the things that inspired her. I think that's when she realized we could be partners, that I was serious enough to build a relationship with. That's extremely mature for a couple of teenagers. She was mature. It took me a little while, but I got there in the end. So you started agreeing with her about, like, living in the West Bank and stuff? Exactly. We were both equally committed to living in Israel, settling the land, following the footsteps of our forefathers, establishing coexistence. I... Okay, please don't take this as an attack, but when you talk about coexistence, I mean, every time I hear about settlements in the West Bank, they seem like they're not exactly going to lead to more coexistence. Like... Don't settlements just take away land that could be part of a future Palestinian state? That depends on who you ask and where you're talking about. At this point, there are certain settlements, and I'm putting that in air quotes, that are just part of the mainstream. They're not settlements like you're thinking of, tents on hilltops. They're fully functioning cities and suburbs that just happen to be in the West Bank. 
if there is a two-state solution one day, which God willing I hope there will be, there are settlements that are just too big to be uprooted. They just won't be part of a Palestinian state anymore. That seems really convenient for Israel and a lot less convenient for the Palestinians. I hear you. But listen, I think that people can live in peace just fine. It's not a settlement that's an obstacle to peace. It's our governments. I'm a settler. I live in a community called Tokoa, which is in the West Bank. I feel at peace with my Arab neighbors. And I would be so, so happy to welcome them to my community. Does everyone in your community agree with that? Communities aren't a monolith, Emily. That's like asking me if every American agrees with each other. Of course not. But I do think Tokoa is a really special place. What makes it special? It was established to be all about coexistence. There are religious people living side by side with secular people. Our school is totally mixed, religious and not religious together. Coexistence has to start from the inside. Okay, that's cool. I like that. But what about coexistence with the Palestinians? I told you. The Kaur is a special place. It's seen its share of tragedies, but the people who live there are still committed to peace and coexistence. What do you mean? What tragedies? You are talking about those two boys, aren't you? Yeah. May their memories be a blessing. What boys? Do you know what the second intifada was, Emily? (sighs) Does it involve constant terror attacks? Exactly. It started in 2000, so about when you were born. Hadassah and I had been living in Tekoa for about a year. We had just had our first daughter, Noah. There were constant attacks. But this one hit very close to home. Nahi was begging Noah, his four-month-old daughter, to stop screaming when his wife burst into the room, her face streaked with tears. They found them, Nahi. They found the boys. The community had been searching since late last night for two teenage boys who hadn't come home from school. Nahi knew from Hadassah's face that the search had not turned up anything good. He put Noah, still screeching, back in the crib and rushed to his wife, who collapsed into his arms. What happened? He asked quietly. I can't say it. I can't even say it, she sobbed. It's horrible, Nahi. It's awful. She detached herself from him and went to Noah's crib, kissing her fat little cheeks. Noah predictably settled down the moment she was in her mother's arms. Nahi didn't press his wife for details. It was all over the news soon enough. The murders were gruesome and there was no doubting their motive. Israel had faced seven months of relentless violence, including the murder of a 10-month-old Jewish baby in Hebron two weeks before. Along with thousands of other Israelis, Nahi and Hadassah attended the funerals, Hadassah sobbing openly the entire time. Oh my God, that's horrifying. They were just kids, 13, 14. Why did you keep living there? Weren't you terrified? No. This was our home. I don't get it. As Hadassah reminded me in our first conversation, you can make the same argument about anywhere in Israel. And not just Israel. God is everywhere. And if he's decided that it's your time to go, there's not a lot you can do about it. Whether you're in Tekoa or Auckland or New York. You think that God had something to do with this? They were kids. I'm not saying I understand it. None of us can understand it. I'm just saying that everything happens according to his plan. It's okay if you don't believe that, but I do. And it brings me comfort. It's freeing to realize that I'm not the one in control. 
even if it's hard to admit it. But you were able to raise your kids there? Like, even after what happened? Of course. I was privileged to raise them there. You know what it does to a person to live in the land of his forefathers? You know that the letters of Bar Kochva were found close to where I live? Remind me who that is? Jewish warrior. He led a rebellion against the Romans in the first century CE. The rebellion failed, but my point is that Jewish history is everywhere. The land itself is full of our stories. It does something to you to walk in the footsteps of your heroes. I don't know if Bar Kochva should be anyone's hero. Yes, fine, but let's focus on the big picture. There's a sense of pride, of belonging. I can't explain it. I just know I belong to this land. And this land belongs to me. Our stories are linked. I've never felt anything like that. Stay here a little longer. You might start feeling it. Can I tactlessly change the subject? <laughs> of course. What about the other people whose stories belong to the land? You mean Palestinians? Yeah. My history doesn't take away from theirs, and theirs doesn't take away from mine. There's room in God's house for all of his children. Do you have Palestinian friends? I have friendly relationships. You know, co-workers, a gardener, things like that. But I'm not opposed to being friends. I think it's possible. I think we have more similarities than differences. Like what? We want the same things, most of us. Safety, security, a home. A way to live in dignity. And you see that every day. Do you? I'll give you an example. Do you remember 2014? Like, in general? It was my first year of high school. It was a horrible time for us here. Three Jewish boys were kidnapped and their bodies weren't found for weeks. And then they were found. Some unhinged young Jewish boys murdered an Arab boy in revenge. It was horrible. Okay, you are not making this case well. Wait one minute. Here's what you might not expect. Arab families came to comfort the Jewish families of the three boys who were killed. And Jewish families came to comfort the family of the Arab boy. Adasa and I went together. I remember that. I thought about going, but I decided in the end that I couldn't look them in the eye. I was too ashamed. Do you think it helped? It didn't bring their son back. But I suppose we wanted them to know that as Jews, as Israelis, as people, we didn't support such a crime. That our hearts were hurting to know we had failed our young people to such an extent that they would go out and seek revenge like that. And I think that the Arab families who came to comfort the families of our three boys I think they did something amazing, too. That's why I tell you that I don't think people are an obstacle to peace. There are more good people than bad. There are more people who choose love than choose hate. I believe that. But there are people who choose hate. Yes. But it's a choice. Which means there are other choices. There's always the possibility for change. Is there? Of course. Ideally, it should start at home. But even the most extreme person can change any time. This country doesn't need to be divided. Just look at us. He gestures to Galina, Matan, and Ilun, and the rest of the bus. We've got religious and non-religious people here. People who believe different things politically. But we're all people who can sit down and talk to each other and choose love rather than hate. Just look at that fellow over there. He points to the young man sleeping across the aisle from him who wears the curled sidelocks and black velvet kippah of the ultra-Orthodox, and an army uniform. I don't get it. What am I looking at? You're looking at a person who represents all of Israel's divisions and contradictions, and all the hope we have for overcoming them. I still don't get it. Why him? I think you should talk to him. He can explain it better than I can. 
Emily looks over at the young man who appears to be sleeping. Her desire to tap him on the shoulder and ask him prying questions is obvious, but she holds herself back, understanding that Nahi's story isn't over. Okay, I'll bug him next, but I don't know. I'm not convinced that just teaching your kids to, I don't know, choose love or whatever is big enough to bring peace to the Middle East. It seems like there's still a lot of structural barriers that go way beyond how individual people feel. Nahi laughs, but there's pain in his voice. You know, you'll be a great journalist. You get right to the painful heart of things. I'll take that as a compliment. You're right. There are structural barriers. And you're also right that education isn't enough. That sometimes, no matter how hard you try, your kids can surprise you. And not for the better. If Nahi was being honest with himself, he had known something was wrong with his 15-year-old son Aryeh for months. The boy had grown moody. His once bright smile replaced with what seemed like a perpetual scowl. And though Nahi and Hadassah had never been particularly strict, Aryeh seemed determined to make them worry, often coming home after midnight. Do we give him a talking to? Nahi asked Hadassah. Tell him that he needs to start coming home at a normal time. I don't think we need to give him directions, she answered. I think we let him guide the conversation. So, they waited one Tuesday night while all the other kids were out of the house. Noah had gone on an extended trip around the world after finishing her year of national service. Ishai was in the army, and the eight-year-old twins, Halil and Hadar, were having dinner with a friend, completely unaware that their parents had arranged for them to be out of the house. Aryeh came home at seven early for him, yet hours after the end of the school day. Hey, darling, Hadassah called from the kitchen. You want some dinner? Not hungry. Come to the kitchen anyway. Your father and I haven't seen your beaming face in days. Aryeh emerged from the hallway looking rumpled. Nahi felt a bolt of tenderness shoot through him. That's my boy. Have a seat, darling, Hadassah said. Aryeh narrowed his eyes. What is this? Where is everyone? No dummy, this kid. This is a conversation, Hadassah said. Abba and I are worried about you. Well, don't be. Aryeh, sit down. Nahi saw a flash of the steely, terrifying girl he had met so many years ago. Aryeh sat. You haven't been home much recently, Hadassah said. Where have you been? With friends, Aryeh said coolly. What friends? Hadassah's voice was still pleasant, but everyone in the room could hear the bite just underneath. You don't know them. So tell me about them. Aryeh sighed, an explosive sound that told his mother just what a drag she was. Their names are Yatir and Shlomo, okay? Are you happy? And what do you do when you get together with them? For the first time that evening, Aryeh did not meet his mother's eyes. Just stuff, he mumbled. Nothing. Aryeh, look at me. Aryeh looked at his mother. What do you and Yair and Shlomo do together, Aryeh? What do you want, Ima? Aryeh cried. What, you want me to tell you that we're doing drugs? That we're having orgies? Don't talk that way to your mother, Ahi started, but Hadassah silenced him with a raised hand. I want you to tell me the truth, she said. Aryeh stared at her in stony silence. And just as Nahi was about to interrupt, to say something cliché about the dangers of drugs, Hadassah spoke. 
and what she said sent a bolt of horror through Nahi. Tell me the three of you didn't vandalize that mosque last week. Hadassah, really, Nahi said. Of course he didn't do that. A long pause settled over the room, finally broken when Aryeh defiantly asked, What if we did? That's not funny, Nahi said. He could hear the desperation in his voice. Please, be a joke. Be a terrible, unfunny joke that a son tells to scandalize his father. What if I'm not joking? Hadassah closed her eyes, as though it hurt too much to look at her son. If you're being serious, she said evenly, which I hope very much that you are not, then we'd need to talk about how to make up for the damage you did. Meeting with the community first, of course. You'd have to talk to the imam and personally apologize. Then you'd need to ask him how to make up for your behavior. Maybe we can arrange for a few speakers to come to the school and talk about Islam. Aryeh snorted. <laughs> no way. I'm not doing any of that. Oh, you are his mother said, because there is no room for hatred in this house. Do you understand me, Aryeh? You're such a hypocrite, Aryeh spat. You talk about peace and love and understanding with people who want to kill us. Don't you care about the people they kill, the terror attacks they plan? Who is they, Aryeh? Hatasa challenged. You know specifically and without a doubt that every single person who goes to the mosque that you defaced is personally responsible for planning a terror attack? The kids, the grandmothers, every single one is responsible? Aryeh flushed. Oh no, you don't know that? You don't have that kind of detailed intelligence, she continued. Then you're going to personally apologize to every single person in that village. Do you understand me? I'm not and I won't, and you're not going to make me. Aryeh left the table. A moment later, the door slammed behind him. Hadassah put her face in her hands and sobbed. Oh my god, that's horrible. Nahi nods, but finds himself unable to speak through the lump in his throat. I am so sorry. <sighs> I just keep thinking. Where did we go wrong? What did we do? Because we didn't model this at home. I know we didn't. None of his siblings are like this. It's everywhere. It's in the air. It's in the politics. On the TV. But so are good things. So are good messages. Why did he choose this of all things? Passion, I understand. Conviction, but violence. Defacing someone else's house of worship, that's not what we taught him. We taught him the opposite of that. I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to bring up all of this. It's not your fault. Trust me, it's never far from my mind. I have found that at a certain point, you have to let go. You cannot force, no matter how much they are hurting you. But... What if they're hurting other people? I could live with it if he was not religious anymore, or if he was drinking and doing drugs, or if he wanted to move to America or whatever. But violence, that's not something I can just let go. And he's so young, he's just a child. I don't know if he understands what he's doing, and I'm afraid that once he does, it'll be too late. His voice trails off. It's clear he's had this conversation with himself many, many times. Try to understand him. Almost in unison, the group turns to the young Haredi soldier across the aisle from Nahi, who has sat up, his kippa back in place on top of his head. Uh, hi. The young man nods at her, but his eyes are fixed on Nahi. My parents did not want me to make this choice. He gestures to his IDF fatigues, 
They wanted me to keep studying in the yeshiva, to be an avrech, a scholar, not to embarrass them with this. I'm sorry, mate. I really am. It's awful, but it's not the same thing. You're doing a good thing for your country, for your people. You think everyone would agree with you? Your Arab neighbors knew Dan Shamron? You think they agree that I am doing a good thing, putting on an army uniform? It's not the same as defacing a mosque. No, it isn't. But I'm telling you that you should try to understand him. Try to understand what he's scared of. What he thinks he's doing. How he thinks he's helping. Because if you push him away and give up on him, he might not come back to you. Believe me, I know. Your parents really didn't want you to join the army, huh? It's not common in my community. What's your name, mate? Shia. Shia Silber. Nahi extends his hand across the aisle, and Shia takes it. It's an honor to meet you, Shia. Thank you. For the record, I think you're a hero. Me too. Me too. I haven't made up my mind about you yet. She looks around and notices everyone glaring at her. Oh my god, guys, I'm kidding. It's a joke. Good one. I thought it was funny. I haven't made up my mind about you either. But you should all know I am not a hero at all. Get this out of your mind immediately. Well, we'll see. I've got about a thousand questions for you. But first, Nahi, I want to say thank you. For what? Sharing your story, being open, being vulnerable. I think in some ways, yours is the most unexpected story I've heard so far. (laughs) What do you mean? Um, not to totally put my foot in my mouth, but... You know, the word settler has a certain connotations. (laughs) We're bigger than our labels, you know that. Yeah, I know that rationally. It's easy for me to think of myself as a complicated, nuanced person, right? But it's a lot harder to think about other people that way. You have to be constantly reminded, you know? Of course. Like, I came here to learn about people, and I still find myself making assumptions. And I'm sure people are making assumptions about me all the time. I thought you were just an annoying American when we first met. And now? Oh, I still think that. (laughs) No, I'm teasing. You're a good person, Emily. This is a good thing you're doing. Talking to different people. Getting us to talk to each other. Thanks. I would probably never talk to someone like Nahi in my real life. Or someone like Shia. And that is... That is a shame. Well, I have no shame about talking to anyone and everyone. I came here to really understand Israel. Is it working? Of course. I mean, your story just proved that. I think everyone's story proves that in some way. It's a diverse country. He gestures to Shia. Mate, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I think you probably have the most interesting story of all of us. I don't know about that. Oh, I'm sure of it. Emily smiles. Is it cool if I ask you a few questions? You can ask. I don't know if I have the answers you're looking for. I'm not looking for anything specific. I just want to hear your story. Okay. Ask me anything. Thank you for listening to Episode 4 of Homeland, 10 Stories, 1 Israel. Homeland is a production of Unpacked, a division of Open Door Media. Check out jewishunpacked.com for everything Unpacked-related, and subscribe to our other podcasts. Follow Unpacked at all the social media places, like TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Just look for at Jewish Unpacked. 
and write to us at podcasts at jewishunpacked.com. This episode was written by Adi Elbaz and produced by Rifki Stern. Our team for this episode includes Adi Elbaz as Emily, Eric Ransom as Nahi, Rebecca Davis as Galena, HSE as Alun, and Nati Rabinowitz as Shia. Audio Magic was produced by Rob Perra. I'm your narrator, Ellie Schiff. Special thanks to research help provided by Laura Ben-David. This show was made possible by support from the Coombe Family Foundation, the Crane Mailing Foundation, the Adam and Gila Milstein Family Foundation, and the Skolnick Family Charitable Trust. Stay tuned for Episode 5. We'll hear Shia's incredible story about life in Israel for a Haredi soldier.